Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Ephesians 4, 1 to 6. Unity in the body of Christ. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Brilliant. Well, it's so good to be with you today. Welcome, especially if it's your first time with us, either online or here in person. Um, My name is Howard. I hope to get to know you if you are new. It's just nice to see you again um, if you are regular and I haven't seen you in a long time. It's really fantastic. We are starting a new series. We are in the same letter, though. We've decided to break it up into different series just to give a different focus. Hopefully you've seen already. It's called Walk in Love. But to set the whole scene, I want to share with you one of my favorite clips from film. Big film fan, as you may have gathered. If you stay around, you'll soon discover that. Um, And this film is called Saving Private Ryan. It's an Academy Award-winning film. And um, the ending sequence, I think, is the most powerful sequence in film. If you don't know it, here's the story. Captain H. Miller, played by Tom Hanks, has been ordered to go on a search and rescue mission for James Private Ryan, Private James Ryan. He is the last surviving of four brothers. His other three brothers have been killed in action. And so he assembles a seven-person team. They go and find him. He's somewhere in Normandy. They reach him, and he doesn't want to, to leave what he's doing. He's fighting for a strategic bridge location, so they join in with him in that, and six of them die in the process of trying to rescue just this one soldier. And then there's this very powerful moment as Captain Miller is mortally wounded. He is about to die and he beckons Ryan in to tell him something. Let's watch the clip now. They're tank busters, sir. P-51s. Angels on our shoulders. What, sir? James. Earn this.
James. Captain John H. Miller. Such a powerful clip and film. I always <laughs> always gets me so moving. And the, the real question is, did he, did he live a life that was worthy of the sacrifice of those men? And it provokes a, a much greater question for all of us. Are you living a life that is worthy of the greater sacrifice of Jesus Christ? That's the theme of this whole series coming up. Walk in a manner worthy, worthy walking, walk in love. We've taken that phrase straight from chapter five, verse two. Walk in love. Walk in a right response to the sacrifice of Jesus, to the high calling of what it means to be a Christian and a member of the church, this great commission to go for him, for all of what he's done for each and every one of us, to live a worthy life, to live a good life. How do we do that, though? How do you find the, how do you find the strength to sustain you to do that, to do that well? How do you find the courage to live counterculturally in a world that's constantly trying to squeeze you and condition you into its, into its mold? How do you overcome this sense of languishing, of stagnation and emptiness that so many of us feel in these COVID-19 times? Well... The answer is in this passage, and it comes from the, the first of seven points that I want to make to you today. And it's the word, therefore. Paul says, I, therefore. I, therefore. But before we get into that, I want to help you to see this passage in contrast, to flesh it out by opposite. So let me read to you how, if you like, not to live a worthy life, how to live an unworthy life. I'm going to read to you from the alternative heretical version, the AHV translation. Here we go. I, therefore, a person with nothing worth suffering for, give my subjective opinion for whatever it's worth that you may live in a blasphemously ungrateful way against the very purpose for which you were made. Do this with all pride and pushiness. Be impatient with everyone. Have no time for others' faults and failings. Point them out whenever you can. Be divisive, encourage discord, play the devil's advocate and think the worst of others. There are many groups and spirits, so there is no true hope. 
many gods, beliefs, and identification ceremonies, so there is no one ultimately in charge. Nothing but nothing absolute looking out for everyone. No design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. That's how not to live a good life. I hope you can see it there by contrast. So point number one, therefore, how do we live this life? By what strength, by what power should we live this life? Yes, we should. And can we live this life? Yes, we can. How? Because of the word therefore. And Paul is transitioning in this letter, chapters one to three. He's showing us the jewel of the gospel, this multifaceted diamond jewel, its beauty, its glory. This is what God has done for you. And all these different shades and varieties, he's drawing that out and exposing it. Here's the foundational truth upon which you live. Here's the beauty of it all. And now he's saying, I want to set that glorious diamond stone. I want to mount it. I want to display it for the world to see in the church, in your life for the world. That's what chapters four to six are all about. So there's a big pivot point moment. The therefore is very significant. We're moving ground. How do we live this out? What should it look like in all of our lives that we would live in worthy response to what Jesus has done? The therefore, what's Paul getting at? He's getting back to all that he's already written. The therefore, therefore you can and you should walk in a worthy manner in response to Jesus. How? Because, let's work backwards into chapter 3, because of the glory of God. Therefore, walk in a manner worthy because of the power of God already at work within you. Therefore, walk in a manner worthy because you have been rooted and grounded in God's love. Therefore, walk in a manner worthy because of the boldness and the access that you've been given right into the very presence of God himself. Therefore, walk in a manner worthy because of the manifold wisdom of God that you're a part of. God's providential plan for all things, which is so much better and gooder than we can see beyond our horizons. He he is good. We can trust him to work all things for our good. Because of the manifold wisdom of God, walk worthy. Because of the reconciling peace of God between humanity and God and between fellow Christians, Jews and Gentiles coming together, walk in a manner worthy of God and your calling. Therefore, because there are good works which God has prepared in advance for you to do, walk in a manner worthy Therefore, because you are now seated in the heavenly places with authority, with Christ, you can walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Therefore, because of God's great love, walk in a manner worthy. Therefore, because he is rich in mercy, walk in a manner worthy. Therefore, because you are dead, spiritually dead, and now you've been made alive, united with Christ, you can walk in a manner worthy. Therefore, because the same power that raised Jesus from the dead now pulses through your veins, walk in a manner worthy. Therefore, because every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places through faith in Christ, adoption, forgiveness, redemption is yours, you can, you should walk in a manner worthy of the calling. These are wonderful, wonderful truths. And we get them all by faith. All by faith. Anyone, everyone who simply trusts only in Jesus for their salvation gets it all. Get, gets it all. Have you done that yet? Have you made 
that decision. I'm trusting Jesus only. You can do that before this service is finished by requesting prayer online. It's a moment to come back to God, to recommit your life to him. And it's an important understanding here that's so often missed that the Christian faith is not about shuddery and ortery. It's not a religion in that sense. You've got to do this, do that in order to be acceptable to God, in order to attain enlightenment, whatever it is, is your end goal. It's not that kind of walk. That's more like being frog marched. I think that's a little bit how poor Private Ryan was having to live. Earn this over his life. Earn this. You've got to be good enough to be worthy of what I've done in order to, to find us any sense of value in who you are. That's not what Jesus says over our lives. He doesn't say earn this. He says honour me. You don't have to prove your worth you live, and by living for him, you end up proving his worth, that he is already worthy. Following Jesus, we're compelled by his kindness. It's a happy walk, a joyful gate. It's a hop, skip, and a jump. This is the way that he calls us to follow him. I wonder, though, if your obedience to Jesus has become dutiful, lacking in joy, um, a, bit, a bit forced in that sense. It's probably because you've got the wrong therefore motivating you. You're not walking by grace in that sense. You've lost sight of that. And it's so easy for that to happen in our lives. I, I think of this religious motivation that can take over. It's a little bit like a naive marathon runner. Maybe you've seen this happen on TV or in, in real life, where a naive marathon runner, when the gun goes off, that kind of they start they sprint. They're like, "I'm going for this!" They're so excited. They're, they're running as fast as they can. They're ahead of everybody else. They're looking around. Oh no, great! This is wonderful. This is really working well. But the mature marathon runner just keeps at a steady, consistent pace. Eventually, catches them up, goes past them, tries not to look with judgment upon them as they are doubled over in pain and can no longer continue. We're so often that marathon runner, motivated by the wrong things. What is your therefore? What's the wrong therefores that can take over? So, so I can be liked. So I'll be accepted. I'm doing this so I can gain approval. I'm doing this so I'll be significant. These are wrong, naive marathon runner, therefores, to live by. And it happens to all of us. We all end up in this place. So many of us as Christians, myself, it happens too. What do you do when this happens? You stop. You stop. You take note of what's happened to you. I feel dry. I feel worn out. I feel weary, weary and frustrated and discouraged. I feel like I've lost my joy in the Christian life. You do that yourself. You invite others to, to do that and say of, of your walk, what's happened in that. And you go back through and you do exactly what I just did in the scriptures. And you can start and work backwards all the way through. Or you start in chapter one and you work all your way forwards. And you remember. You remember what God has done for you. You stop and you worship again. And you let the love that he has for you, the goodness that he's bestowed upon you to motivate you to want to follow him. There's no grave you can visit to motivate you like Private Ryan did. But we have the scriptures and we can meet Jesus, the living Jesus, face to face in them, talk with him and then press on. Therefore, 
This whole section then has got a lot of do's and don'ts to some extent in it. This is how you should live. But it's all founded on grace. On grace. That's the first point. The second point is urge. Paul is writing, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Are you walking with a sense of urgency? Urgency. The Christian life is not aimless or purposeless. It's not really the walk of a tourist. Now, there's not been many tourists around for some time. We appreciate that, especially in London because of all of the COVID-19 travel restrictions. It's a wise thing. But you may remember tourists that they would walk around kind of aimlessly, looking around, slow, pausing, stopping, getting in our way, standing on the wrong side of escalators and pulling their luggage around, tripping people up, almost deliberately. It was very mean. Um, they're just very slow in that sense. And, and that, that's not really the Christian walk. Yeah, there's a place for that to be, to be slow and stop and enjoy God's good creation. But Paul is saying there is an urgency to this, to this walk, not an anxiousness, but an urgent walk. Some translate this word beseech. Paul is, I'm beseeching you to do this to get serious about this calling to walk in a manner worthy and what is the context here to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called we have been called you have been called your life is not aimless it is filled with this higher calling and sense of purpose what is that calling you go back to chapter one into verses four and five you were chosen called before the foundation of the world by God himself to be what holy and blameless before him and then to reveal him to the world what God is like to the world that he is reunifying bringing everything to back, get back together that has been distorted and divided through sin that you are called to be salt and light to push back the, the frontiers of darkness darkness together with a church family. Urgency in this calling. It's urgent because death can come at any moment. We should know that more than ever right now. I was reminded of this some years ago. It was a very moving moment for me. I used to play a lot of tennis. I was at my tennis club. I'd not long been a Christian. And I'd come back from university to, to pray, play at my local tennis club. And there was a new coach there. Uh, and I was sort of getting to know him a bit, seeing him in the distance. And I felt a really strong prompting from God. How would you need to go and talk to him about me? You know, tell him a little bit about me. And I looked at this guy. He just seemed so cool, so impressive. He was so confident. He seemed like he had everything together. I'm embarrassed to say I didn't, I didn't obey Jesus in that moment. I, I was too fearful to go and build that conversation with him. Two weeks later, he was dead. Turned out that he had committed suicide. See, so often people, they present like they've got it all together. But deep down, it's an absolute mess inside. Now, I believe in the sovereignty of God. He's good and he's in control and he would have organized someone else or some other way for that man to hear and have an opportunity to respond to Jesus before he died. I missed the opportunity to honor the Lord and grow my walk with him. I think as well that so many of us get hung up about our specific callings. 
I've had a lot of conversations over the years with people who, I just want to know what I'm really meant to be doing. What am I here for? What's my particular gifting? What does it look like you know, for, for me? And, and they kind of get a bit stuck and they kind of stop doing a lot because they, I just want to know what that is because I don't want to waste my time. I'm doing that, that and that, but I'm meant to be doing that. That Then is what's the point of it? And it, the point is because you've stopped really following and walking in a manner worthy and you've lost sight of the fact you have a general calling already. Go and do the general calling. And as you do the general calling of being a Christian, then you'll find the specific calling. Don't get stuck in that way. Consider these words from the founder of the Salvation Army, William Booth. Not called... Did you say? Not heard the call, I think you should say. Put your ear down to the Bible and hear him bid you go and pull the sinners out of the fire of sin. Put your ear down to the burdened, agonised heart of humanity and listen to its pitiful wail for help. Go stand by the gates of hell and hear the damned entreat you to go to their father's house and bid their brothers and sisters and servants and masters not to come there. Then look Christ in the face, whose mercy you have professed to obey, and tell him whether you will join heart and soul and body and circumstances in the march to publish his mercy to the world. One of the things I think the film Saving Private Ryan gets so right is that when you see him there, you see him with a line of his family behind him. Reminds us that people, not possessions, are what matters. What matters is the impact your life has as it brings gospel blessing to the people around you. That's what matters in the end. Don't let the world trick you otherwise. It's about accumulating this. It's the size of your house. It's how many qualifications you have and all that kind of stuff. It's all about people. And the people that you can ultimately work with God to see that they are in eternity with you forever. Do you need to readdress your priorities? How you're living? Are you catching the sense of urgency that Paul is talking about here? That's the second point. The third point is patience, sorry, is humility and gentleness. Is that how you, should, how you would describe your walk? Is that how others would describe your walk? Walk in a manner worthy of this calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness. It was half past midnight some years ago and a very simple man, um, he's very simply, sorry, not simple man, very simply dressed man um, showed up with just a, a small bag, very late um, to this venue and he meets a guy called Doug who's working late on cleanup crew for Operation Mobilization and this simply dressed man says, is this where the, the conference will be tomorrow? And so this guy Doug says, yes, yeah, it'll be here. Um, let me find you somewhere to sleep. So he goes and helps him to find uh, somewhere to sleep with 50 other guys on, on the floor, um, uh, you know, not very comfortable. I think he finds a little roll-out mat for him to sleep on, gets him some food. They eat together, then they bed down for the night together. In the morning, when they wake up, the conference organizers come to Doug very, very cross. Why? Did you not know who that was? That was the main speaker 
for our conference. We had a whole room set aside for him to sleep in. His name was Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer is probably one of the most influential Christians of the 20th century. Give you some taste of that because sadly I think he's lesser known now. Here is one of his five volumes that sit on my shelves, a collection of multiple books that he's written. Phenomenal thinker, but he never let on. He never let on. He never said, I'm the main speaker, you should be doing this for me. Just amazing humility. Amazing humility, just to accept what the Lord provided and slept rough on the, on the floor. Humility, it's been said by someone cleverer than me, is not thinking less of yourself, beating yourself up. That's not humility. In a way, that can actually be a false pride. Humility is actually thinking of yourself less. And to do that, you have to think about God more and other people more. You need to fill your head and mind with God and the needs of of others. That's how we can be properly humble. So that means stopping needing to be right all the time. Being more sensitive to other people's feelings. Getting rid of that proud Pharisee-like judgmentalism and gossip that often come where you, you might hear that, oh, do, you, do you know so-and-so is getting a divorce? Do you know that? Or they've, that so-and-so, he, he had a divorce. I think Jesus would say, what business is that of yours? Stop it. Stop it. The Apostle Peter talks about humility like this. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. He says it like this in his letters. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. Now this description of clothe yourselves, he's more literally saying apron yourself with humility. Put on the apron of humility. And he's making a deliberate reference back there to um, Jesus washing the disciples' feet. This model and example of what humility is like. That Jesus, hours before he's about to be brutally murdered, in that moment where surely he's like, this is my time. You should be looking after me. I need your help. No, he's putting the discipleship of others above his own. And he gets down on his knees. He puts the apron on. He takes on the form of the, the lowest of servants. And he washes their feet, even Judas's. Wow. That's, that's humility. Pride, on the other hand, is what brings division. It's what separates it's what pushes you away from people. It's what contaminates the body of Christ. And we can be so easily proud. Proud about our jobs. Proud about our homes. Proud about our careers. Proud about our intellects. Proud about how much theological knowledge that we have. Proud about our qualifications. Proud about how much money we have. Proud about our physical appearance. Whether we're athletic or we happen to be beautiful in the eyes of the world, all that kind of stuff. You can be very proud and then look down on other people and you, you, you create a gap. You push them away and you draw away and it causes division in the body of Christ. And I tell you, God hates it. Pride is so often the sin that we most need to confess and repent of. In order to walk with humility and gentleness, not just now and again, it says here, all humility, 
all humility, with all the humility that you can muster all of the time in every circumstance. It's not just when you're around Christians, but when you feel <laughs> most wanting to fight back and be proud, that's the moment, all humility. The fourth point is patience, bearing with one another in love. Are you walking with patient love? I am very much a perfectionist, as people who know me well know. And this means I get impatient and frustrated and annoyed at my own mistakes. And then also at the mistakes of other people, when I feel like they're not doing a high enough standard and I can feel myself really annoyed and angry inside about that. What about you? What about you? Are there certain people who really annoy you? You're all too holy. You look looking back like me. Oh, no, that never happens to me. <laughs> Let's be honest. Are there personality types that get on your nerves? Are there people who just they make you really just impatient? They just keep doing things which is just stupid and not right and not listening to advice. And it just, it's just really annoying. Why are you doing that? Oh, oh gosh, it's frustrating me. Do you lose your patience with them? Are you patient with them? Peter, again, I think in a moment where he thought he was being really clever, Matthew chapter 18, he comes to Jesus. And I think he's worked out that I shouldn't be like James and John, the, thuns, the sons of thunder, calling down fire from heaven to nuke people. We should be more forgiving than that. So he comes to Jesus and says, like, so how often should we forgive other people who kind of wrong us? Now, not, you know, like sexually sin against us. We're not at that level, but just kind of like that. Lower level of sin, if there is such a thing, all sin is serious, but I think you know what I mean. How often should we forgive them? I think, Peter says to Jesus, I think we should do it seven times. Isn't that great? Aren't I holy? Um, you know, I'm so good. I've said not just once, you know, but seven times. Jesus says, no, Peter, 70 times, seven times. Whoa. Whoa, that's a lot of patience with people who might wrong us. I think patience is the fruit of the spirit that most of us don't really want, isn't it? But it's the characteristic of God that we can't live without. Where would we be if he wasn't long-suffering and slow to anger? I tell you, you would be toast. You would be toast. Who then is God challenging you to be patient with, to bear with in love in this church family. Notice it says with, with, that's close, distant, proximate, near, alongside, with, and it's in love, that you can only do this through love, and wherefore we need to ask for the love of God for that individual. God, help me to love them in the way that you love them. Give me that love. The action point there here is to simply pray that prayer. God, help me to love this person the way that you would love them and to be patient with them. Point number five is eager. Are you eager to maintain unity? I think many of us, which is wonderful, are eager to pray more, are eager to study the Bible more, are eager to worship more, are eager to share our faith more. We're eager about that. But what we often neglect is that we are not so eager to maintain unity, to see that as a key expression of our, of our worship. Eager, eager. What does this word eager mean? Well, I think of a, a puppy dog. 
coming to its owner again and again with a stick or a ball going, please, please, throw it again, throw it again. You throw it again and the dog rushes over and then comes back to the owner. Yeah, 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 please, I want to do it again. I want to do it again. And you do it again and they come back and they're just as eager. Please, please, throw the stick again. Please, throw the stick again. Yes, please, I'm waiting. Yes, go. Off it goes and then it comes. Eager, that sense of eagerness. Are you eager like that to maintain unity or are you like, oh, do I have to do that? Eager. We're called to be eager to maintain unity. Why maintain unity? Because church life is a bit like a car. It runs down and needs servicing. It gets worn out. It's because the world, the flesh and the devil, this unholy alliance, are always working to sow discord, to bring division, to put tension into the body of Christ, to make you think less of each other, to make you feel slighted when it wasn't really intended at all, to make you hold a grudge when you shouldn't and for longer than you should, to make you avoid certain people and stay away from them when actually the very people you need to be with are your church family. We need to be eager, unity, maintenance, mechanics in the church life. Now you may be thinking, that's great. I know so-and-so and they've had an argument and I'm going to come in and I'm going to help them. No, that's not this passage. Elsewhere we talk about peacemakers. No, this is you. This is your relationships. This is you taking responsibility for the way that you relate to people in the body of Christ at Westminster Chapel and for how there might need to be more oil of God's love put into those relationships where they might be fraying or strained or difficult, or there might be misunderstandings and you need to go and, 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 and repair those. Or you're having these negative thoughts because you haven't been near a person and you've let some cycle keep going on in your head. No, 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 we need to be unity maintenance mechanics aware that we're in a spiritual war where the world, the flesh and the devil are trying to rip us and tear us apart. So we need to be eager to maintain unity. The sixth point is oneness. And the question here is, did you get the importance of the last point? <laughs> it's really a way of highlighting the importance of maintaining unity. Because Paul in his letter, he goes on in verses 4 and 5 to use the word one seven times. Seven times. That's significant repetition. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. It's number seven. Seven ones. That's the number of Hebrew perfection. Rest. Sense of God's completion goes back to the seventh day on which God rested and celebrated his great creative work. There's a beautiful rest of the oneness of God that is the foundation for our oneness as a community, as the people of God. We don't create unity. You might think that's what we're doing. No, we maintain unity. We have a unity already simply by faith. We come to faith and because of God, God's unity in his trinity, he gives us that and he gives us seven key aspects of commonalities that can hold us together. That there are seven things that we all have in common that draw us together, that give us strength, that are our reason for coming together and are the very power that enables and strengthens our unity together. This unity is just so, so important. We are all born of the same God. No matter who we are, no matter what we look like, we're all born, born of the Spirit. 
What this means, and maybe you've had this experience, it happens occasionally for me where I can meet someone and I know nothing about them. I've never set eyes on them before. But I can meet them and just know, you're a Christian, aren't you? And they're having the same thing back at me. Yeah. And there's a, there's a witness inside the Spirit. We're born of the same Spirit. The Spirit's speaking to me and He's speaking to you. We know that we are one. There are these beautiful seven oneness factors that make us in the body of Christ, that hold us together, that are thicker than blood. And we need to see them as precious. The mission of the church is to reveal God's unifying mission to the world. This is what Paul is writing about. He's writing about the reunification of God with humanity through Jesus Christ, the great mediator. He's writing as well about the joining together of heaven and earth through Christ. The reconciliation of all things. He's therefore seeking to express this of how sin has destroyed all of that, separated that. But now the mission is to reveal this reunification work of God through the church, through Jew and Gentile coming together, united. And for us, through our diversity coming together in unity, reveals God's mission in the world. Reunifying all that has been divided by sin. When you see it like that, you start to see church unity as absolutely essential to what we're doing as Christians. By maintaining unity, we are helping to reveal God's mission plan to the world. Here's the final point, over. Are you over or under? Paul here writes, doesn't he? He says, the Father who is over all and through all and in all. So many of us, we want to be in control of everything all the time. <laughs> And it's a really stressful way to live, isn't it? You find that you want to be in control, want to shape things, have them work to my agenda. For me, the moments where I feel most at peace, most, oh, I can relax. And when I find someone really competent, like an amazing project manager or a pilot, and they're just so good at their job, so reassuring. I can, just, oh, I can just relax. I don't need to worry anymore. I don't need to second guess their work or check everything or do all of that. I can be at peace. How much more so should that be with God in his control over the universe? You see, if you, if you fight against the Father to be over him in a way rather than to be under him, then you'll never be really fulfilled and you'll never experience him working fully through you and in you. So we've got to surrender. We've got to surrender to him. God is the ultimate reality. He's in control. And so therefore we must confess those delusions of grandeur, die to our pride, which is really what it is to say, I think I know better than you, God, about this. Clothe ourselves with humility and then work to maintain unity. It's important we do that, yes, for the glory of God and for the witness of the church, but also for revival. Psalm 133 says, we're brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. There the Lord commands the blessing. 
where the people of God come together. And there's not a false unity, but a deep unity in togetherness. God pours out his Holy Spirit in power. Renewal and revival comes. Division and disunity, it grieves the Holy Spirit. It sends him away. Working eagerly to maintain unity brings, draws, welcomes, invites the Spirit down for his presence to come in power. That's why we're talking about this. That's why it's so important. We want the Spirit to come in power. Do you know, at the end of my life, the worst thing I think that could ever happen would be that I realize I've accumulated things that the world deems incredibly valuable and precious, but that I didn't live a life worthy of Jesus and the high calling. And I think about that scene in Private Ryan and I might want to turn to my, to my wonderful wife, Holly, and to ask her opinion. What do you think? Did I live a good life? And, and to be honest in that situation, a bit like Private Ryan's wife, she can't really say no. <laughs> I mean, it would be a terrible film, wouldn't it? Not really. No. But she's got it because he's his wife and she loves him and it's a film and it's a movie and we want that nice ending at the end of it. Or she could say, Did I, am I a good person? Did I live a good life? No, only God is good. The kind of theologically correct answer. Um, <laughs> that's just not, not right. What I want to do is uh, human opinions can be valuable. But the words I want to hear over my life are, well done, good and faithful servant. How had you walked in a manner worthy of me? Worthy of the calling? You sought to maintain unity and the spirit came. What about you? What about you? How will you live? Let me pray. Lord, we thank you so much that you came, Lord, on a rescue mission for us. In many ways, we are saving Private Ryan, we're that film, we're Ryan, you came to die on a cross to defeat sin and death so that we could be rescued and have life, Lord, and we thank you that you don't say we have to earn it. How could we? How dare we ever think that we could do it enough? But Lord, you simply ask us to honour you, and Lord, we ask you to fill us with your spirit now and help us to walk in a manner that is worthy worthy of you, worthy of your sacrifice, worthy of the calling you give us. We confess our pride. Lord, we confess all the ways we've been angry or annoyed and irritable and impatience, Lord. And we ask for your spiritual power to flow through us, to be humble and gentle and patient, to bear in love with one another, to, eager, to be eager to seek to maintain unity if there are any relationships that are not right in our church, I pray today, today, let there be restoration, reunification. We ask, let there be nothing in our church family that would grieve your spirit and prevent you from coming down and moving in power. That you would pour out your spirit amongst us as we seek to gather more and more together in unity and honour you with our lives. Amen. 
Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.